our holy God, we are grateful that we can come into your presence through the blood of Jesus, for his priestly ministry on our behalf. We can come and approach you. We can meet you. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would move in our midst, that those here would not hear what I have to say, but we would have ears to hear what your spirit has to say to each one of us individually, that you would plant truth in our hearts, that it would grow and bear much fruit. We ask that you would protect this place from the attacks of the enemy, that he would not snatch away the seeds that are planted, that he would not distract or deceive, but that your truth would go forth with your presence and your power, quiet our hearts and minds, let us be open and receptive to what it is that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are in Acts 26 this morning, and... For those who know, I often reference other <laughs> scripture passages, and that'll be the case again today, but you can go to Acts 26 for where we start. And so just to set the context, we've been going through the book of Acts, and Jordan pointed out I hadn't preached at all <laughs> through Acts, and here we are in chapter 26, and it's like, well, I guess it's been a while. That's okay, though. <laughs> and so we've been following the story of Paul, we've been stuck following the story of the expansion of the church, really, from Jerusalem out throughout the Mediterranean and the world around there. And then the end of Acts, the big bulk of Acts, is about Paul and his, his ministry, his journeys, and that's where we're, we're at today. This is the end of, towards the end of the book of Acts, towards the end of Paul and his journeys. He'd been arrested in Jerusalem because of his faith in Jesus, not because he was... <laughs> doing anything um, sinful or criminal is because of who he committed his life to, because he had faith in Jesus, was proclaiming the resurrection in Jesus, spreading the good news, and so he got arrested. Then he gave his defense before the hostile crowd there in Jerusalem. Um, he gave his defense before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, and then he was transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is a city on the Mediterranean coast because of threats and attacks. The Romans protected him by transferring him to Caesarea, and there in Caesarea gave his defense before the Roman governor Felix, two years later before the Roman governor Festus, who took over for Felix, and then today, he gives his defense again before King Agrippa, who is there uh, visiting Festus, and there's some others who are there in the audience as Paul speaks. And before we read the passage from Acts 26, I want to think about what Paul has to say um, in the context of his pedigree. Pedigree is like the history of the background of a person, an animal, a group. You can have a good pedigree or a bad pedigree, right? You can talk about, like, you've got good heritage, like people talk about the dogs and the pedigree of a dog, like, to make sure it's purebred and it's the kind of dog you want. But you can talk about people, too, like they've got a good heritage, a good background, but it also could be evil or criminal or something bad that was in their background. So I want us to look at Paul thinking about it what he says in terms of his pedigree. And in this first section, he's going to go through his, uh, his life before he became a follower of Jesus. He lays out some of his religious pedigree as a Jewish man and what that looks like. 
So we are in Acts 26, starting in verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. So Paul was a Pharisee. He says it was the strictest sect of Judaism. And he says he lived that way since he was a child. He grew up, he was born and raised as a Jew. He was trained in his religion. And if anyone was religiously zealous, it was Paul. He talks about him uh, zealously and fanatically opposing Jesus because he thought Jesus was false. They thought he was a false teacher, that those who were following him were following false teaching. He thought that he had the truth and that those who were following the way of Jesus were following a falsehood. And so he was zealously persecuting Christians because of his religion. He thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians, thought he was doing right. And in verse 11, it talks about in his obsession against them, it could be translated that he was furiously enraged or insanely angry with them. Paul was in a crazy, mad rage at Christians, so much so that he was traveling all over, even to foreign cities to arrest, to persecute Christians, to put them to death. And if you read earlier in the book of Acts, Paul was there when Stephen was stoned to death. They said that they put their cloaks at the feet of Paul, who was giving approval to his death. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was a Pharisee. He followed the strictest sect. And earlier in Acts 22, it's a similar, um, similar context to what we're reading today. Paul gives his uh, story again, and here's a little bit more that he explains about his, his background, his religious pedigree. He says in Acts 22, verses 3 and 4, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, which would be Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. So he was 
born a Jew, and he was taught under the rabbi Gamaliel, and Gamaliel shows up earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, as someone who was a prominent, influential teacher. So Paul was raised and taught and trained by the best of the best. Gamaliel was someone who had sway, and people listened to him and his teaching of the law, and Paul was trained by this man. So he was trained by one of the best rabbis that there could be. So he was a Pharisee. He was trained by a prominent rabbi. He had all this religious instruction, knowledge, and training. And two more passages that give a little bit more of his his background, his religious pedigree. In Galatians, he says, "'You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism.'" How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul was one of the brightest as well. Festus here in this passage in Acts 26 even says that your your great learning is driving you insane. Paul was highly intelligent, highly educated. He knew his faith. He knew the traditions of his fathers The problem was, he didn't have a relationship with God. He had all this religion in his life. He knew the scriptures better than most, and yet he missed the point. He missed that the scriptures were pointing towards Jesus as the Messiah. And that was the problem. One last one we'll look at from Philippians. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul had it going for him. Well, it was Saul at that time. If you hear me say Saul and Paul, it's the same man, right? He was Saul, but then after he became a Christian, after he was converted, his name was changed to Paul. So same person, if you hear me uh, reference that. But He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. (laughs) He was the best and the brightest. He had zeal. He wanted to follow the law to a T. Greatest training that he could have. He had more training and instruction than Jesus, which was something I I was thinking about. Like, Paul had... Paul probably had more training than Jesus did as far as like religious instruction and being brought up in the the Jewish faith. He didn't have, or there was probably no one who had a stronger pedigree than Paul or Saul. And some of us are like that in our backgrounds. Some of us are like Saul. We grew up in church. Maybe we've got family members who are pastors or missionaries or elders, or deacons. Maybe we know the Bible really well. We've studied it. We've even memorized parts of it. Maybe we even went to a Christian or Bible college or university. We've got, gotten different trainings, and we have a religious background. And because of that, we could maybe even boast, like Saul probably did, of his self-righteousness. Or we could look at our impressive pedigree, like look at who I am, look at all this religion and all this religious stuff in our life. We could boast of our heritage, our accolades. But you know what the truth is? No matter how religious or how quote-unquote good of a person we are or claim to be, none of that will save us from our sin or give us a relationship with God. Just like with Saul, he had all the religion. (laughs) He knew the Bible. He memorized it. 
But none of that saves Saul either. The good news is that Jesus loves us just like he loves Saul. Sometimes when uh, we read the Gospels, I think we think that Jesus is really out to get the Pharisees, the other religious folks, that he loved the tax collectors, the sinners, he hung out primarily with them, and then he despised and condemned the religious Jews. The reality, however, is that Jesus also loved the Pharisees. He loved the Sadducees. He loved the chief priests. He loved the teachers of the law. He related to them differently, but he loved them. And I think he wanted them also to repent and embrace him as the Messiah. So Jesus loved all. And Paul is an illustration of that. And if you read through the scriptures and if you look carefully, scripture records that there were other Pharisees who became followers of Jesus. Scripture records that there are priests who became followers of Jesus as well. And so Jesus came for all, for the religious as well as the irreligious, for the haves, for the have-nots, for the rich and the poor, so that through Jesus, the Messiah, they could be reconciled to God and then reconciled to one another. So whichever camp or camps you might find yourself in, the message is the same as to turn away from your sins, to trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for your salvation, and then start following him with your life. Briefly, though, since we're, we're talking about Saul and then Paul and his story, I do want to speak to those of us who have um, a religious background, which is me. I grew up going to church. I mean, every Sunday we went to, we went to church. I have a religious background, and many of us here probably do as well. That's not good or bad, that's just reality. Uh, but if that is your background, I want to encourage you, don't trust in yourself, in your religious practices, don't trust in the faith of a family member or a friend because, uh, for your salvation. Sometimes we kind of get off the coattails of my parent or a friend who's got strong faith. None of that's going to save you. You've got to have your own faith. Our kids, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, your kids need to embrace Jesus for themselves at some point. They need to have their own faith, and you need to encourage them to do that. Because religion does not save. Only Jesus saves. As Peter said earlier in the book of Acts, there is no other name under heaven given to, given to people by which we may be saved, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the only means of salvation. Jesus is the only one who can bring us and restore us to God, and he's the only one who can give us a friendship with God our Father. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior yet, you can start today. You can pray and ask Jesus to come into your life. You can see me, one of the Jordans, or someone else, and we can share with you more about what it looks like to follow Jesus and how you can have a relationship with God through him. Because anything else that we're trusting in, our religious heritage, our pedigree, our quote-unquote goodness or righteousness, going to church, reading the Bible, praying, none of that will save us. Only Jesus will do that. None of those things are bad, but if we trust in that, that is where the problem is. And then, once you give your life to Jesus, 
your life is radically transformed. And this is what happened with Saul. His was a complete and radical transformation, a transformation that I think Jesus wants to do in all of our lives, no matter what our background is. So let me continue his story from Acts 26, starting in verse 12. On one of those On one of these journeys where he was off to persecute Christians, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus showed up in this amazing, incredible way. There's this light, there's this voice from heaven. He has three days worth of blindness. Saul was living this anti-Jesus life, trying to persecute, attack, kill Christians. And then Jesus shows up and the persecutor becomes the persecuted. Everything is radically transformed And Paul now becomes on Jesus' side. Instead of trying to attack Jesus and his people, he's now on Jesus' side. And it's fascinating to think about, like some of the very people that arrested Paul in the book of Acts and are coming against him were probably his former associates and friends who he would have associated with at one point. And so when he says, like, you know my previous way of life, like, surely they do. They grew up around him. They know what what he was like. But not everyone's conversion is going to be that dramatic, all right? Mine wasn't. Mine was nowhere near (laughs) that dramatic. Some of ours in this room probably are or were, but uh, that's not the case for all of us. But after meeting Jesus, there ought to be a radical transformation in our lives, a radical reorientation from living a self-centered, selfish life to now living a Jesus-centered life. There needs to be a radical commitment to him that affects everything in our lives, just as Saul's encounter with Jesus radically impacted him and everything about his life. This, I think, is what Paul is talking about in verse 20, if you go down further in Acts 26, where he says that people should demonstrate or prove the repentance by their deeds. You can imagine him saying, you believe in Jesus? Good. Well, prove it to me. What, what is it? What is the evidence in your life that demonstrates that you have repented, that you have trusted and followed Jesus? Because if we have, if we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, there has to be fruit. It's non-negotiable. There has to be. There has to be some fruit. There has to be some change. If there is no fruit, if there is no transformation, then you need to go back to the beginning and reevaluate whether or not you actually have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus. And if that's the case, if you haven't, like I said earlier, today can be the day. Today can be the day when you trust in Jesus and turn away from your sins and turn to him, looking to him for for, uh, salvation. So what was the the radical transformation that took place 
in Paul's life. I went over earlier some of these things that characterized his previous way of life, what I'm calling his religious pedigree. But if we look at the New Testament, he also lays out what his new pedigree is in Jesus. Like I said earlier, he went from being a persecutor of Christians to being a Christian himself who was persecuted for his faith. And the passage I read in Philippians 3 earlier is a great passage that illustrates uh, the change. And this uh, picks up where we left off in Philippians 3. It's starting in verse 7, where Paul, who wrote the book, says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Whatever was to his profit. Being born into the people of God, being trained under the rabbi Gamaliel, all his religious instruction and training, whatever was to his profit as a religious person is rubbish. <laughs> I consider it a loss. It's it's nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of that is nothing. That pedigree, all that he could have boasted and bragged in, doesn't matter. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm not going to read it. I'm just gonna, I made a list, a bullet point list of some of the things he listed of his, his uh, what I'm calling his new pedigree. It's 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28. And he's, he's boasting, quote unquote boasting, of what he's experienced as a follower of Jesus. And the question I ask is, how many of us would boast if this was our experience? And I guarantee you, none of us in this room have had this experience of following Jesus that he lays out in uh, 2 Corinthians 11. So he goes and he says that he was imprisoned and flogged multiple times for Jesus. I mean, this, he's in prison right now. He's been arrested and he's not going to get free. He's going to end up being executed in Rome. He says he almost died many times. Five times he received the maximum penalty of 39 lashes with a whip. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned once. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was adrift on the sea for a day. He's had to constantly be on the move because of stuff that was going on in his life. He's been threatened and constantly in danger from rivers, bandits, fellow Jews, Gentiles, false brothers, in danger in the country, in cities, and at sea. And when I read those verses, I thought, well, basically, wherever you could go, <laughs> there's people out to get you. <laughs> and wherever you go, there's attacks and you're in danger. And so he's faced threats no matter where he's gone, whether it's in the city, in the country, if he's on the road, there's always threats coming against him. And then he said he had to labor and toil. He's gone without sleep, food, or drink at times. He's been cold, hasn't had enough clothing to keep himself warm. And all of this is because of his faith and obedience to Jesus. Like, when Jesus showed up in his life and he committed his life to Jesus, this is what he signed up for. He signed up for all this suffering, this loss, the hardship, the pain. And then if we go back to Philippians, he said, I consider all this good stuff, all the honor and prestige he had as a religious Jew, that's, 
that's nothing compared to the greatness of following Jesus. And the greatness of following Jesus led to suffering, hardship, persecution. But I guarantee he wouldn't go back and change one thing in his life because he knows Jesus and has a relationship with him. And I wonder how many of us would rather have the safe, prestigious life that Paul had before his conversion. How many of us would prefer... <laughs> to live an honorable life as a religious Christian rather than signing up for sacrifice, suffering, loss of following Jesus? I don't know. That's a, a question that I was thinking about because if you look through this list in 2 Corinthians 11, it's an impressive list, but if I'm honest, it's completely terrifying <laughs> to see what in the world happened with with Paul because he had it all. He, he had it all because of his background, his previous way of life, his religious heritage. He had power. People looked up to him. He'd have their favor. And then he gave it all up for hardship, suffering, trial after trial, attack, persecution for his faith. And he signed up for it because of his radical encounter with Jesus because he knew what Jesus did for him, forgiving of sins, turning him from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And so he said, Jesus, I'm going with you no matter what. No matter what hardship, suffering, loss, trial, attack, persecution comes my way, I'm committed to you to the end. And he was. He was persecuted and executed for his faith. Jesus turned his life upside down, flipped it over, the man who zealously attacked Christians became a zealous person for Jesus Christ. And the reality is Jesus flips lives upside down today as well. If we commit ourselves to him, he'll flip our lives upside down. And my story is not, not as dramatic by any means as Paul's, but I can relate to it a little bit. There's some stuff from my background that I look back and it's like, if I didn't... But my life, if I didn't commit life, life to Jesus, life would be a whole lot better. I'd have a lot more money. I'd probably have some other things going for me in life. But I'd rather have Jesus and nothing <laughs> than have the world and not have Jesus. Let's finish up the story of Paul. So he met Jesus. Jesus turned his life upside down. Jesus gave him some instructions through this encounter. And then in verse 19, he says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. 
because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may may become what I am, except for these chains. So as we've seen from Paul's new pedigree as a follower of Jesus, he was obedient to what Jesus showed him. Paul shared his story hundreds, maybe thousands of times. He proved over and over again that Jesus was the Christ from the scriptures. That's fascinating that God redeemed his background. He knew all the Bible. And then when he became a follower of Jesus, he could go back and all his knowledge, all his training, he could take and prove from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Paul preached that Jesus was the means of salvation. He told them to repent of their sins, to trust in him. He kept doing it to the poor and lowly, as well as to the rich and powerful. His hope was that all would become Christians. As he said, all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Paul publicly testified to his faith and says that his faith is a public faith. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were public events. They were not secret or done in a corner, as he says. It's true and reasonable. He's not insane like Festus accuses of him. And all of these are good points for us to remember because we do not follow a secret, mysterious faith like some faiths that are out there. There's no hidden knowledge. There's no deeper levels to our faith. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's public. It's true. It's reasonable to all who examine the evidence. How many people went out and sought to discredit Christianity in history, and then became Christians themselves as they they sought to attack and discredit it. But when they examined the evidence, the evidence pointed for the reliability and the truthfulness of Jesus and the gospel, and they became followers of him. From every level of scrutiny, whether it's historical, legal, scientific, literary, personal, or whatever other level of scrutiny you can analyze Jesus and the Christian faith with, The person of Jesus stands up to all attacks. So if that is true, why is it hard for people to believe or why aren't there more people who believe? There's probably multiple reasons. One is Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and that's not very popular because most people just want to live a self-centered, selfish life pursuing their own pursuits. And then Jesus came along and was like, well, you got to die to all that. (laughs) You can't just keep living for yourself anymore. The way of Jesus is hard and it requires humility, not religious pride. And sometimes people just want to do things themselves. There's other reasons, but I also think about 2 Corinthians 4.4 where it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age is Satan and him and his hosts have blinded the minds of unbelievers, as scripture says, which corresponds with what Paul said in Acts 26, verses 17 to 18, that Jesus told him to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The God of this age has blinded the minds of, of unbelievers, but we, like Paul, have the privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus so that their eyes may be opened, 
and they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And so I'm going to close with, how do we open blind eyes? Well, the first thing is prayer. For your unbelieving friends, family, others, the first and foremost thing to do is to pray and ask God to open their eyes and to take the blinders off so they can see the, the light of the gospel. But also, share your story. Another way to open blind eyes is to share our story of transformation. And if you follow Jesus, you have a story. And like I said, it may not be as dramatic as Paul's, but we have a story, a story of how we came to believe in Jesus, but also we ought to have multiple other stories of maybe how God answered our prayer, how God encouraged us and got us through really hard times in our life, or how God surrounded us with Christian friends who brought us meals or encouraged us through difficult times how he um, saved us maybe from a calamity at one point or another, how God was with us through all things in life. We've got a story to share. We've got stories to share about the goodness and salvation of God. And as we share those stories, I think God can take those stories and open spiritually blind eyes. And if you look at Paul, he shared his story. He shared the story, the gospel, but he also shared his personal story. And when we share our personal stories, God can take those and help open blind eyes. Because those stories testify to the reality of God, who he is, that he's not just some God in the sky, but he is a personal God who loves us and knows us intimately and wants to have a relationship with us. We just need to be obedient and sharing obedient and open to sharing those stories when we have those opportunities with fellow Christians, but with our unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, co-workers. There's a couple, an older couple here in Danville that Lauren and I know, and one of the things we love about them is they're just always naturally just talking about God, like God answered our prayer, God did this while I was driving the car, just everyday ordinary things in life, they just recognize that God is with him. And I imagine that's the life that Paul lived. And I imagine that's the life that Jesus wants all of us to live is just everyday, ordinary life with Jesus. And he just naturally, he just naturally comes up in our lives. And we have opportunities to share our stories and point people towards Jesus. And then alongside sharing our stories, we need to share the good news of Jesus. This is what Paul did. He shared his story, but in the midst of sharing his story, he shared what I'm saying is the story, the story of Jesus, the good news of who he is and what he's done for us, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead for us, that he came to turn us from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, how Jesus was the Messiah, how he fulfilled the Old Testament. And when Paul shared the gospel in the Bible, he always talked about Jesus' death and resurrection. But he also didn't do it the exact same way every time. Depending on his audience, he tailored his message to that audience. And so we share the, the gospel in clear and relatable ways to the people around us in their circumstances, their situation, their background. And as we do, God can open blind eyes through that as well. And for me, I had a moment like that in my life in college. Like I said, I grew up going to church, but there was a moment in college where God led me to the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and there's 
a moment where it's like the light bulb went on. <laughs> it was like everything made sense. And he presented like a, a logical, rational argument for the Christian faith, which those of you who know me, that's, that's what I needed. <laughs> Other people are more impacted by a powerful story of transformation. Some of us are you know, like me. You need to have like logical, rational, evidential <laughs> argument for the faith. But it's like everything clicked for me and like the light bulb went on. And it's like going from darkness to light, it's like the blinders are, are removed. And that's what Paul is called to do, what we are called to do, to, to open people's eyes by sharing our stories, but also to share the good news of Jesus. And as we do so, we got to remember, not everyone's going to respond positively. They didn't all uh, convert and believe when Paul shared the gospel, right? Today, in Acts 26, they didn't all say, oh, yes. I believe in Jesus. Some of them hated him. Some of them tried to kill him. Uh, not everyone is going to respond positively when we share the good news, but the important thing is to be faithful, to share our story, to keep doing it, to keep sharing the good news about Jesus, regardless of how people respond. So what are you trusting in? Are you like Saul, trusting in your religious practices, your pedigree, your heritage, your righteousness, or your goodness? just living for yourself? Or are you like Paul, trusting completely and wholly in Jesus, living a life of radical commitment to him no matter what hardship or suffering may come your way? Let me encourage you and invite you today to trust in Jesus alone because religion can't save, only Jesus can. Turn away from sin, from trusting in self, from trusting in religion, and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and a place in God's family. Because like I said earlier, the invitation is for the religious and the irreligious. And then once we've committed ourselves to Jesus, let's share our stories and his story, following him faithfully, whatever may come our way. Let's live out our new pedigree as followers of Jesus, considering everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, because Jesus is better and everything else is rubbish compared to knowing him. Paul lost a lot when he followed Jesus. We may lose a lot also, but he gained Jesus in a place in God's family, an eternal relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and nothing compares to that. Nothing is better than that. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for the fact that you love us right where we are, whatever our background is, you love us, you want a relationship with us, you sent Jesus to bring us to yourself. And I pray for each of us in this room that we would trust wholly and fully in you. We would commit ourselves to you and follow wherever you may, may lead us. Whether it's um, a path of prosperity or if it's a path of privation. Whether it's a path where things go well or things don't and we suffer. Whatever it may be, Lord, let us stay committed and faithful to you, following you, sharing our stories and your story with those around us. Please bless us, Lord. Bless the work of our hands and use us for your purpose. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.